0: Have you found yourself settling in your life, not thriving? You got sober and you've been going down this path and suddenly you're like, this is it? This is my life? This is what I got sober for? Yeah, this is a common theme. Good news for you is that you've tuned in to Recover Like a Mother. And my name is Lane Kennedy. I help women in recovery access the life they imagined through a practice of mindfulness. I'm so glad you're here. Let's get into the show.
1: And you're listening to Recover Like a Mother.
0: Welcome back, my friend. How are you today? It is another day, another episode. And today I'm bringing you a guest expert. And this is, I'm really excited about this conversation as I am with every conversation that I have on the show. But this conversation is with Joe Newman. He is, he has helped me so much with my son. He is the author of the popular book called Raising Lions. He is Joe, I, I, I can't even express. He is so tapped in to how to help children, how to help that children parent relationship, how to connect us back. Joe, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Lane. It's nice to be here.
0: So, I know a little bit about your history and what brought you to raising lions and what made you, uh, what inspired you to write it. But I would love for you to share with our moms who are listening a little bit about your story so they can get a feel for who you are. Why don't you start off that journey? Yeah.
1: So, you know, I was, I was one of the first generation of kids medicated for a, for ADHD before it was called ADHD in fact, I don't even know if I like calling it ADHD. You know, I, I, there's a there's a beautiful, wild, tangential mind that, that doesn't do really well in school. And, and I sort of fit the bill for that. I was the poster child for it for a while. They studied me at National Institutes of Health and at Johns Hopkins. And I was on Ritalin from 1970 to like 78. And a lot of the seminal doctors in the field were my doctors. And, uh, you know, and I struggled through school and I was always the kid in trouble and the kid who couldn't sit still and constantly hearing what I was doing wrong. And it was, you know, I left school with a big chip on my shoulder, you know, mostly a chip that said, you're broken, you're disordered, you're lazy, you don't try hard. And, you know, and went to college for seven weeks, dropped out and took off surfing for a long while. And in the interim, I, you know, I, I probably did about 30 jobs in the 10 years after school, I can rattle them off if you'd like to hear them. You know, I was a personal trainer, I sold encyclopedias, I picked oranges, I built furniture, I was a court reporter, I was a chef, I was a waiter, I owned a business. Anyway, well, it goes on. So, and not not because I was not good at them, but because I was just bored and wanted to do the new thing. And I also drank way too much, partied way too hard. And in my late twenties, kind of woke up on the side of the road going, wow, am glad to be breathing today, and I took a look at my life, and I uh, decided I needed a mission to give meaning to it, something that made my life valuable to somebody, and I'm a Buddhist, so I chanted for five days, you know, almost all day, every day, and then at the end of that, I realized, wow, all of the, the baggage that I went through, that I gained in school, all the stuff that I've been fighting as a Buddhist to overcome, and and the chip off my shoulder is happening right now to millions and millions of kids. Millions of them are having the experience right now. I'm sitting here. And I just walked into an elementary school that afternoon and said, give me the craziest kids you got. I'll work for free. I had a little business. I I had plenty of time. And and they were like, yeah, whatever. Come on. No background check, no fingerprints. It was an inner city school and they wanted the help. And they thought I'd do well. And that started a road that I've been on for almost 30 years. Okay.
0: So this is what I love is that, you know, nowadays they call it neurodivergent. So my, my son has been diagnosed ADHD, oppositional defiant disorder, ODD, and I can't stand the label. And so when I hear you talk about the tangential, what, what did you say?
1: Tangential thinkers.
0: Tangential. Right. So I, I and I, I, watch my son. He has this brilliant mind but he struggles, he struggles. And I, I often think about like his path, you know, when he leaves my house, when he's 18 and he's done, I'm thinking he's never going to have a girlfriend. The, the jobs are going to be like, like yours. Like he's going to be an orange picker and a waiter and a chef. And like he's going to go through all of that. He's going to on a beach somewhere sitting there thinking, what did I do wrong? What happened to me? And Luckily for me, like I found you to kind of navigate this because it is as a parent, I blame myself. You know, I go into what did I do wrong? How come my son is like this? And I've had to grieve this idea of this perfect child that I was raising. Like I had an idea, preconceived idea of like, oh, we're going to be able to do this. And we're going to be able to do that. And I can't, we can't because of this defiant structure, this, the way that he is, his inability to clean up after himself. Right. And so when I reached out to you, I was at the, I was at that breaking point. I was at the first breaking point. Let's just put it that way. And what I learned from you is to connect with him. And I think that what I hear from you is you had to connect with yourself. Yeah. You, you said I had to find uh, a mission to meaning. I had to, br- I had to like find something
1: to myself and to the world into the world and i think those are the two things you know i had to connect other there's people in the world and and if you can have an impact on people if you're important to people if you're needed by people if you contribute something then your life has meaning isolated it's very difficult. It becomes very philosophical and easy to lose. And I think we need to, that's sort of the key thing. We started talking about it before we recorded, like, well, there's our kids need connection and how we build that connection is important. And that connection, you know, it's not always pretty. It's messy. It's supposed to be messy. And I think parents are set up for failure. I think culturally right now, I would throw out that all of these diagnoses that we have are, uh, for our kids are, are not so much diagnoses of their disorder as they are symptoms of our culture's disorder. And if our culture can heal, those things will shift.
0: How does that culture shift though, Joe? I mean, that is so deep and profound. And, you know, it's this inside work that I'm constantly preaching about and having to do, right? So I'm meditating an hour a day. I'm being quiet with my dog. I'm trying to connect with him but how do we do that on a cultural
1: yeah and I think that the, because when you paint the big picture it looks like you know well that's impossible we're just screwed right we're screwed our kids are screwed the environment's screwed we're screwed that's how it looks but what I you know the the different thing about the nature of my experience and my work is it's i I didn't learn how to do what I do you know in a, in a classroom with a professor or alone with a computer and a stack of books, getting a PhD. I learned because I went time and time again with the most difficult kids and I just had to solve the problem. And nobody gave a damn how I solved the problem, to be honest. They're like, use the old method, use the new method, use the method from Mars. We don't care. Just can you do something before this kid completely goes off the, the edge here? You know, kids who are heading to... And so for me, it was perfect for my type of mind, hyper tangential mind doesn't, doesn't want to be in the box anyway, hard to keep myself in the box even when I want to be there, but it's it's moving around to answer questions and get a practical answer. So the, the short answer is the most powerful part of that whole connection is you can, you can shift your set of interactions and your assertion of needs And how that needs goes back and forth between meeting each other's needs between you and your children. And deal with that. That's the prototype for the rest of it. If society's going off the edge, that is what will steer it back. Not some big governmental change. It's it's the human interaction changing. And that requires some transformation of our own thinking.
0: That right there is such an inside job that people just don't have the time for.
1: Yeah, I would argue that, that you know, they they don't have the time not to do it. It's just, you know, the, the analogy I heard is that, you know, you spend, you're digger, digging so vigorously with a spoon that you don't have time to get up and grab a shovel.
0: In today's hyper-connected world, where do we find that time? Where do we find the time to disconnect? Do you think the pandemic was actually beneficial? Well,
1: only in that it brought a lot of a lot of shit to the head. <laughs> I mean, brought things to a you know, it, it brought things to a difficult point. I mean, a lot of people uh, were forced to look at the state of their relationships, to so this state of you know of their children's minds and days and those interactions in ways they hadn't before. Some people then use that to change something and to to start to go on a, you know, a journey, some sort of transformation, but there's, but it also created an enormous amount of tension. It created an enormous amount of addictive behavior with children. I think you know, you've got a lot of kids who are coming back to school, you know, who, when the schools are opening and I'm hearing from, from the preschools, elementary schools, like and those, the kids, their self-regulation has just been abandoned.
0: 100% agree with you on that. That is it. So how do we help our children come back into that self-regulation?
1: Yeah. So I think first, you know, I think there's a, there's a couple of practical tools, but you have to think about, you know, are my kids, do they have boredom tolerance? Are they tolerant of boredom or are they stimulation junkies? Now, most of you are going to say the second, you know, my kids are stimulation junkies and, and stimulation junkies leads to regular, you know, real junkies or addicts. You know, they're, they're very adjacent sets of behavior.
0: And I think that stimulant junkie, right. With the gaming, like I, I watch it with Adrian, like yeah. I see, and I have to really limit it. I have to put a hard stop on it. I have to be, I have to be almost militant about it. Yeah. And because I see his face turn red, I see he sweats and then he wants more. And as somebody in recovery, I understand that I want more, right? So I have to be really on top of him and kind of explain that. But then I'm the, I'm the bad person. I'm the big meanie. I'm the idiot. I'm the stupid one, right? Like it puts a huge blow up in our house every night or not every night because he doesn't get it every night, but there's a, a lot of angst caused with the devices, Right. So how do you how do you work around that? Like I just want to rip it throw it out, get rid of it. Like what do you like what do we do?
1: Yeah, I think part of it is you, you need to start by having some sort of boundaries around the devices. Very lim- if you don't have a very specific start and end time, you're already in trouble. So take that step first. There's a start time, there's an end time. It's not something that changes every day based on how well you're getting along and how charming they are which is what people typically do. It's like, well, you you know, today we can go like this, you know, or today we can go like this and it moves around. And, and that's, that's a recipe for, you know, very ugly arguments for when you're not in the mood because it puts you in a position of being sort of their judge instead of their coach. So you shift that first by creating a hard stop. And second, I would argue that, you know, we have to also look at that we are parenting in some ways, too much. We're giving too much, too many answers. We are filling the void with too many new things. We are coming in there and providing too many solutions, too many accommodations. Uh, Every time we're doing that, every time we're stepping in, we're robbing them from an opportunity to proactively use their own prefrontal cortex, which is the thing that regulates that and makes those bigger decisions. So We have to ask, you know, we might be trying to control their habit, but are we doing that? Are we parenting like dealers? Are we parenting like iPads? You know, that are just being their prefrontal cortex. Here's the next amount you need. Here's the next amount you need. They got to regulate that. So to hold a boundary, allow them to struggle with it, control our own anxiety, set a boundary around our need, and not judge that process as it's going on, that's your challenge. And a lot of that's what you're not doing. So you
0: wrote about this in Raising Lions and I don't know what chapter it is, but you talk about the parenting too much and I am guilty of parenting too much. And now Adrian calls me out on it. He's like, stop being a helicopter mom. And I'm like, oh, that's the last thing I want to be. right?" But I want to get back. I want to get into your book a little bit because I think this is such a wonderful resource but when you were writing it, I wanna get into your heads, like into your mind. Did you realize what you were writing at the, at the time? Did you realize the value and what was coming to you? Was it effortless?
1: No, I mean, you know, writing was not a joyful experience. I mean, writing was, you know, one of my daughter's friends said, oh, you're a writer, you know, you must love writing. I'm like, yeah, I love it like needles in my eyes. It's like, that's how much I love it. No, I would have to chain myself. I did, I actually would use this whole like mental preparation tool of sort of that Barry Michaels had taught, which is about reversal of desire, where you imagine the pain cloud that you're gonna step into. And then you try to love the pain and you try to realize you're free when you get through the pain. So, no, it was not easy. And I, but I will say that what happened was I was doing you know, I'd been doing the work intuitively for years, and I was teaching people how to do the work with kids, and I was having some spectacular results with really difficult kids. And And in the middle of one really tough case, a lot of things kind of came together in my mind, and I had a realization that there was a cultural shift happening in that, and that that was influencing how children were developing different, and that these th- two things were kind of making a perfect storm that was you know, damaging our children. Our children were the, the, you know, they're suffering the consequences of that. And that what I was doing was addressing and changing that course. But I didn't really know why until that moment. And at that point I thought, oh fuck. Can I say fuck over in your podcast? Good. Like I said, oh fuck. I gotta write a I gotta write a book. And like I did not I thought I just knew at that moment either you write a book or you live with regret like deep painful regret and so pain was always my motivator like the pain of having that that ghost haunting me that i knew this thing and i didn't make myself write it down and took me two and a half years and i wrote it down
0: that's not very long honestly yeah that's that's really that's that's great yeah pain is the touchstone right of growth (laughs) that's the we all need it (laughs) we hate it but it, the book is so brilliantly laid out and your process, your method, it's stunning how it works. And so when you think about when you go back in your life and you were in that first school with that first hard case yeah. and you saw this kid change, what was going through you?
1: Well, you know, it happened so slowly and I, I don't think I really even, you know, I'm very self-critical. I'll be honest like i read raising lions and i'm just critical i'm like so i'm like oh now and then i'll like every other page I'll that's go, every
0: author that's every creator every creator is critical
1: and i'm constantly re like changing it and changing it improving and it, improving it and going there. It, it has to and working toward so it's like you know I, it's just my that's my process i'm, I'm constantly like criticizing it, reevaluating it, making it better, criticizing it, reevaluating it, making it better, looking at a new way to kind of have that happen. So, when I first walked in, and, I, and it's evolved, I mean, certain parts of my method, actually, I will say that probably two years after I'd started, I could see the whole framework of the thing that I'm still explaining now. It was in practice, it came out then. And, that, and, and, I, and I didn't have any idea how to tell people why to do it or even exactly how to do it, but people who watched and mimicked me got good results. Those basic things of having a structure, like for me, I like, I, I need to organize things. I think in order to survive the day, because I've got so many things going on at the same time, so many interesting things, you know, from thinking about, you know, is 40 pounds of green coffee in the closet enough from the roasting I want to do in the next three months? And what's going to be, you know, from surfing to baking to building, it's like, these are all still going on. So. And see, now I've lost my train of thought, but, the, but I, I like to organize things in a, in a way that I can create some habits around them. And so for parents, I ask them to do two things, set up a structure of causes and effects that you can repeat in a similar way over and over throughout the course of the day, causes and effects, causes and effects. This talks to the scientist inside your child, right? And then combine that, now lay in, into that structure, a relationship that gives them autonomy, communicates a high expectation and becomes their coach, not their judge. And those things are pretty straightforward. Now, if you can script those things into basic interactions that you repeat around conflict, you have a model, a way of sort of practicing that will expand out into all of your relationships with your children. But You repeat this sort of, it's almost like a, a moving meditation, you know, and you repeat the same pattern. You learn the pattern, you repeat the pattern. You learn the pattern, you repeat the pattern. You know, wax on, wax off, wax on, wax off. And all of a sudden in the moments you find yourself doing these things naturally and you've shifted what was basically a long-term karmic pattern. I'm
0: just dropping in right here to remind you that you deserve to live an epic and amazing life. And if you're not, I want to be the one to support you. In overcoming your burnout, eliminating your perfectionism, and any of those ruminating thoughts that keep you away from the life that you want to be living. Check out my eight-week program, Mindful Safeguard, over at recoverlikeamother.com forward slash mindful. Thanks again for listening and let's get back into the episode. With all of these families, kids, you know, from that first child that you, that hard case,
1: yeah,
0: right? Do you have contact with that hard case anymore? Uh, Yes. Amazing. That's what I find. is so incredible. So you have this children who, and parents that change, and I would, I would think that would be super rewarding for somebody who has struggled with this kind of brain. I don't want to label it, but you know, the, 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 the ADHD brain that compartmentalizes has to be structured or it can get lost, but you have evidence that your method works. Yes. And I would think that would be so fulfilling and enriching to your yeah. life. And it goes back to that mission that you kind of woke up and like, I need to change. Right, I need right. to do something.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, I sometimes though I feel like uh, there's a story about Gandhi as a boy and his uncle, you know, picking up starfish or the tide has gone out and all these starfish, like thousands of starfish are drying out and dying on them the sort of exposed reef and they're all gonna die. And his uncle's picking up a starfish and throwing it into the water, picking up another starfish. And he says, you know, you know, or what ha- what does it matter? He said to his uncle, you know, if you it, it, I mean all these guys are gonna die. What does it matter? And he holds up a starfish and he says, well it matters to him. And he throws out the starfish. But that's how that's how I often feel because I think culturally it's it's we need a wave of people to sort of Shift the paradigm in how we look at kids from the island mentality that they're these isolated, you know, islands where you can understand their neuro- their neurology, their behavior, their emotions it, it, as something that is contained within a, a closed system, something you can find out from a neurologist observing them for six hours. I don't think that works. The, the closer and closer we move to that ideal, to that the worse our kids have gotten. That's the that's the reality of the last 50 years. The worse our, the mental health of our children has gotten.
0: It's the mental health of everyone.
1: Yeah. And that's because we're, we're, we're missing that actually our mental health can't be seen inside that closed circle. Mm-hmm. Our mental health is a way. You know, you were saying before the podcast, you felt like your son needed a coach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was saying that's because you have... You only have four strands in a in a spider web, you know, four span, strands, span blah, blah blah blah. Four strands won't hold that web. Okay, you need fifty, or forty, and you need them crossing and holding each other. And and if you want to understand your children's mental health, it's in the space between. So you know, I I just think that when we make that shift, when we start looking at it, and we stop seeing, we we have to not see ourselves as broken. That's step one. And then we can start not seeing our children as broken. And then we can start to work on that, that whole thing. I mean, for me, you know, tangential thinking, I, I, I literally think ADHD, you, there's a whole nother explanation for ADD. That's a whole lot more simple than, you know, some mysterious biological disorder that says that, you know, this is hyper tangential thinking. Okay. So you have some trees that make three branches and so you know of thought for each idea and then three off of that and then you have some that make 10 and 10 okay so you put those two kids next to each other in a kindergarten class and one of them's managing you know three thoughts and the other one's managing 10 or 100 and you wonder which one's distracted and so you you think the one that's managing 300 is disordered well the fact is that all intelligent species on the planet are useless in their community for the first couple of years, like way tangential, but the new Caldonian crow has to be fed by its mother for two years. But about the smartest animal on the planet. You can learn languages, recognize faces, follow patterns, use tools. It's like eh you know compare that to the chicken the chicken self sufficient by like 3 months old you know so you get the crow and you get the chicken in kindergarten and then you end up medicating the crow
0: who, who- oh my god what are we going to do joe you just brought up medication so i'm going to have to i got now i have to go there
1: yeah
0: medication helpful all
1: right so you're talking to somebody who Who was medicated?
0: I know that's why I'm asking you, right? Like you're you're professional and you have experience at the kazoo. I have a child who I live with. Yeah, right. So I see this firsthand, and it's sometimes. And he has friends who also suffer from this the condition or how the brain is right. And you know it's hard because the mother the uh, the other moms say, oh, I put Johnny on X Y Z and it's helped so much. Maybe right, you should right. consider it. And I think, oh shit, should I be considering that? Yeah, right? And- like it throws a wrench into my, you know, my soul. Because I, I, I don't have an answer.
1: Right. And uh, the truth is, let me start with medication helped me survive school.
0: Yeah. It,
1: it was like, I felt like it was sort of the mental camouflage I needed to make it through, you know, to survive behind enemy lines. Okay. Did it help me learn? No, it didn't. It helped me sit still, helped me get through school, helped me not get thrown out, helped me stay out of the principal's office, helped me keep my hands to myself. It helped the teacher make it through a lesson instead of chasing me around the room. But did it help me learn? No. And I gradually realized that and I took myself off at 14 and I thought I got to wrestle with the mind I got. And a lot of the work that I do is trying to mitigate help parents mitigate the problems of attention, the problems of self-regulation. So that if your child is, you know, on a scale of one to 10, 10 being super tangential, i.e. super ADHD, right? And your child, you know, presents naturally as an eight. Well, without self-regulation practice at home, without having to defer gratification at home, they may present at school as a 10. But with those things, they may present at school as a six and a half or seven, which might fall below the threshold of needing medication. And I'm I'm trying to help people get to that space. And for the people who can't get to that space, I don't hold it against them. They want the best for their kids. They're trying to help them survive. Uh, But what you need to know is that long-term lifetime, I think there are as many downfalls to a lot of Maybe most of the child medications, there are are downsides to that. And so you're making it through a problem, but understand it's not the whole picture. There's a lot going on.
0: So I'm going to just kind of connect this to recovery, right? And sobriety, because I think they're so interrelated. So I suffer from a disease called alcoholism. People can't see it, feel it, touch it, taste it, hear it right? Like it is something within my soul that I had to live through and alcohol helped me every single drink I think I needed for survival to deal with the restlessness or the irritability or the highs and the lows of my life. And what I'm hearing is there's something very similar with this kind of divergent, tangential being that medication- can help. But it's also, it's not the solution. That's right. That's what I'm hearing from you is that there's something you had to find a way, right? You sat on the beach and chanted, and then you had to find your, like something greater. And you've learned to navigate the way your mind operates.
1: Right, right. And, And, you know, and a lot of that was, there were two parts of that. I would say there's a, there's a part of that of retraining my mind to, to be able to better focus. And there's a part of that of learning to be kind to myself and sort of lean into the parts of that that are beautiful. And those both have to happen. It can't just be the push or just just the pull. It can't just... So one example, when I was 30, I moved to California. I couldn't sit still to read a book, never had been able to. And I thought, okay, I'm getting rid of all the tech in my house. You know, it wasn't a lot of high tech at the time. You know, computers were slow, but I was like not having it, not having a television, no cable TV, and I'm not having roommates with that stuff. I lived alone, okay? So I lived alone in a studio apartment, and I started buying books. And initially, and I bought books about psychology and biographies, and you know, great fiction and nonfiction about linguistics and mathematics and whatever. And initially I had to read those books. I would read two, three minutes I could stay with a book. And i put the book down on its spine and i pick up another book. I, two, three minutes, put the book down on its spine, pick up another book. I did that for two to four hours every afternoon. I would either surf and read or just read. There was no surf. After about six months, I found myself one day driving to the beach, check for the surf and go. And actually wishing there was no surf, I'm like, I'm really wishing there's no surf because I wanted to get back and read, and I was, I was basically retraining my mind, and I was, and through a, what you can call neural Darwinism. Neural Darwinism is that if you run a particular neural path over and over again, it becomes very easy to run it. If you try and do something new that you haven't done, for me, sitting still with a book, it's like hacking through a forest that's dense and that path has never been walked. It takes you forever. But each time you go through that path, you go through faster and clearer, and it's a more direct line. So for three years, I did that. And then for the following 10 years, I did not own a TV. Because I could, I know my mind. I turn on the TV to watch, you know, some sort of informational, you know, news show. And four hours later, I'm watching my third Gilligan's Island. It's like, okay, so I know I need to put certain things aside so that I can develop the brain I want. So that's, that's the, there's a discipline side to that. Shape the life that will help you develop the, the mind you want. And then there's a part about leaning in and understanding and embracing sort of the beautiful aspects of that mind. I teach myself a lot of different things. You know, I go from baking pastry or learning how to make pizzas to building a deck to, you know, making furniture or altars for people or, you know, to surfing, and, I, and it's not just surfing. It's like I want a longboard, a shortboard, long a, short a, a stand-up paddleboard. I want to switch every other day. This is part of my mind. I like to move from thing to thing, and I find that those things eventually interconnect and build a richer life. So I lean into those things, and I try to, uh, and I try to find like my work is it's problem-solving. Most families don't spend more than, you know, five to ten sessions with me, and they're finished. You know, I like that. Don't put me in a classroom I have to be in every day for a year. I'm gonna get bored.
0: I think that is. I, I was with you for ten sessions. Is that what it was? Eight. Eight, eight sessions, and I felt like so much relief. It, it was it was truly baffling to me. And watching my relationship change with my kiddo, but it was more it was more about my relationship to myself. And now that I haven't seen you and, like during the pandemic, I've gone back to those old bad habits and I'm like, oh my God, I got to go see Joe again. I got to get back in. Right. So there is this, like, I have to be diligent with my own work. And because society is so fast and we're very isolated right now, it's become more challenging. So this is such a great reminder for me on I know how I want to be as a parent like this I want to let Adrian do what he wants to do. I want him to figure it out. I want him to use that prefrontal cortex. All in theory this is what I want, but I it's like I need the reminders. Right. You know?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's hard to calm down, you know. It's I think it's just hard to calm down. We get really worked up about what's going on and we bring a lot of anxiety to it. And and I think you know there's also a certain amount Yeah, I think one of the reasons I'm good with these kids is that i know what it's like to fall down on my face as it happens a lot it happens a lot in my life you know there, yesterday i had a great day In the, the first two three hours a day spectacular i wrote wrote three plans like for parents three different kids i did a really brilliant little talk with some preschool teachers i worked for about 45 minutes exactly on what i was supposed to do and the rest of the day i mostly watched youtube videos and trailers of and movies. And I just couldn't stop. It was just a mess. It was like, oh my God. My wife was like, yeah, be nice to yourself. That what are you was- watching? What are your YouTube channel? What are you watching? Oh, it's, it's, it's always stupid stuff. It's like, you know, every trailer for every movie that's been out, you know, little film clips from the deer hunter, you know, I I might as well just watch the deer hunter, you know, you know, and then of course it's, you know, Meryl Streep talking about what it was like doing the deer hunter. It just keeps going down one hole after another, you know, surfing videos. I watch a lot of surfing videos. It's like, you know, now and then it's building things. Sometimes it's baking things. Sometimes it's just whatever the clickbait they throw in front of me. You know what I mean? And, and that's how I spent like the last three hours, my, my work day yesterday, you know, you know, felt like a complete boob. And then, but you got to learn how to fall and get up and fall and get up and fall and get up. And I think sometimes we just hold ourselves and our kids to a to higher standard. And we're just, we just need to be a little nicer ourselves. We get up, we try again, we do it, we do it. And that repetition of that's how you actually build grit. I was reading something last night as an article about a woman who was sober, and she was talking about how to kind of build skills in her son that would help him to resist addiction and be less likely to be addicted. and she and and she based one of the things that really stuck out is she said, give kids real skills, but for that to happen, you have to create situations where they can try and fail, and try, and fail, and try, and fail, and eventually succeed, repeat, do it again, and I just think there's a lot of pressure of kids getting things right, and I just want to just try things, do them again. The break protocol that I taught, asking a kid to take a break, that's practicing doing this pattern. It's loosening up that feeling, that mental and emotional association with failing, with stopping, with Correcting with turning your course. So it's a tool that parents can use to incorporate that into the day. So if you can do that on a regular basis, ask kids to take a break, ask them to self correct in the way that they do without telling them what it is you want them to correct. Let them do that. And you can repeat that over and over again. Your kids, you know, provided you do that without a charge, provided you're not doing that with them heavy judgmental tone your kids will take on that experience without a charge. I I love that you're laughing at
0: this. Well, you know, I'm always charged. So mama, for you, you're listening right now, Joe would, we would do these practice, right? What is it called? It's like mimicking each other. And I, he would say, okay, repeat that to me. Role play. Role play. We would do the role play. And he'd say, okay, say that back to me. And I'd be like, don't do it. And he was like, okay, wait a minute. Can you just drop it down a little bit? Can you be less judgmental? Can you, can you just be nicer? And, and I thought, oh, I am being nice. Joe, you've given me so many tools to use. And I know that there are so many more in your book. I can't, it's like, you are a resource that is boundless. And this idea of trying and failing, trying and failing. You know, the home is the safety place for our kids, for our children to try and fail. And when I'm being judgmental, it's just failure. And as a woman in recovery, as a mom in recovery, I can be super judgmental, you know, and I can say, oh, I'm working my program. I'm being sober. But you know what? If I'm being that way to my son, it's not very sober. It's not very, it's not cool. It's not cool. Right? Like I'm been gifted this child and it's my job to let him try and fail in a safe place so he can go out into the world and fail and not want to kill himself, not want to pick up a drink, not want to destroy his life because that's what I did. I had Mm -hmm. parents that were miserable alcoholics, you know, and I scraped myself together to get sober, but You know, I want to break that chain as a sober mom. I don't want to be doing that. I want to create this safe environment for him to fall down and for me to say, you know what, that's okay. And the other week he actually stubbed his toe and I was like, baby, you're okay. Just get up. And he was like, oh, really nice mom. (laughs) And I heard him, right? I was like, oh my God. Oh, queen asshole right here. You know, but I own it. Like before I would not have been able to own that. I would not have been able to comfort him. I would, you know, it's parenting and being a mother in recovery is an opportunity to change and to learn new things. And I think that's what you bring to this conversation is that you bring ideas on how to be a better parent. And I really just adore you, Joe. Where can our moms find you? Because they're, they're going to want to find you. So,
1: you know, they can always go to raising lions.com. The best
0: book book. You got to get the book.
1: So, "The Raising Lions" is on Amazon. So you can find it on Amazon. Yep. You can go to my website. That's theraisinglions.com. I'll
0: put a link in the show notes. Okay.
1: There's a YouTube channel which oh. is super helpful if you haven't watched it. There's a lot of videos on there where, where parents are acting like their children.
0: <laughs> but bro, I was gonna say, don't get lost in the rabbit hole. eh? <laughs> just stay right, focused right. on the channel.
1: There's <laughs> <laughs> also a great deer hunter video, not on my website, on my channel. So Instagram. Okay. You can follow me on Instagram, raising, at raising lions. Raising lions. And you know, I might come to your clubhouse chat one night.
0: Yes, that's right. We yes, a clubhouse chat would be beautiful.
1: Yeah, and you know, I'm working. The second book is really close to being done. We're just we're looking for the publisher right now. And it's good. The tentative title is Your Children Are Smarter Than You Think. <gasps> I and, love it. Yeah. So, and I do work with families. You know, a lot of people don't realize that they can call me and. They can get some work done and they just set things up. And I think just realize, you know, it's, you're up again. It's like most people can't get sober without a program or a community. And why should you be able to change your karmic patterns of parenting without a program or a community? It's like, you know, find some people you can do things with, get some help, find a pattern to change that. And, you know, and then
0: you work it so beautiful. Joe, thank you for being on the show today and sharing your wise wisdom and that beautiful mind.
1: I don't know. I feel like I was nice and I, I felt free to let my mind a little loose today and go a little wild and tangential the way I like it.
0: Beautiful. Mama, thank you for listening today. May you find something light, something bright, and something so delicious that fills you up so you can be the best mother you can be. Until next time, take good care. Hey, are you trying to overcome burnout. So many people are. You're not alone. And maybe you have perfectionism running through you and ruminating thoughts of how to do something. Maybe you avoid things. I don't know. It gets tricky the longer that we are in recovery. The good news is that I help women in recovery access the life they imagined through a practice of mindfulness. I have an eight-week program. Eight weeks. That's what it takes to change your life around where you can start living and thriving in your life, the life that you got sober for. If you're burnt out in your recovery and you need a tune-up, you want to try something else, check out the Mindful Safeguard. You can find out more information over at Recover Like a Mother. Get on the wait list. It's an eight-week program. It opens and closes, and I would love to have you participate because I know that you didn't get sober just to live in mediocrity. No, you got sober to live a life beyond your wildest dreams. All right. I hope to see you in there. Thanks again for listening to the show.